Hi there. Thank you uh, very much for coming today. I'm Chris Edwards, an economist at the Cato Institute and editor of our website, downsizinggovernment.org. Thanks a lot for being here. Well, despite the improving economy, the federal budget continues to be a big mess with high levels of spending and huge deficits. While the deficit is expected to fall in the next few years, the CBO expects that deficits will start rising again in 2016, mainly because of expanding entitlement spending. Entitlement spending is a huge problem that needs to be solved. Most of the focus in recent years has been on the Social Security Retirement Program and Medicare and Medicaid. But after those three large entitlement programs, the next biggest entitlements are the two federal disability programs, Social Security Disability Insurance and Supplemental Security Income. These programs together cost over $200 billion a year now, and they are growing rapidly. And these programs show all the pathologies of other federal entitlements. SSDI and SSI uh, have rapid and uncontrolled growth, they have excessive usage, and they are undermining productivity in the U.S. economy. To get an idea of how large the $200 billion a year we spend on uh, Social Security disability insurance and supplemental security income, consider that food stamps, uh, which have been in the news a lot over the last few months and years, cost about $80 billion a year. Well, the combined cost of SSDI and SSI is about two and a half times larger than the annual cost of food stamps. But despite that huge cost, SSDI and SSI programs seem to fly under the radar in Washington policy circles. Lately, there's been a lot of, in the last few years, there's been a lot of debate about uh, how to best cut federal spending. Uh, we, should we cut defense? Should we cut Medicare? Should we cut Social Security or food stamps? Uh, the answer is we should cut all of these. Everything should be on the table, including SSDI and SSI. Uh, we discuss cuts to every federal government uh, department and on Cato's website, downsizinggovernment.org. Well, we've got two experts here today on SSDI and SSI, Tad DeHaven and Jagadish Gokhale. Uh, they will explain how these programs work and uh, why they're such big bu budget busters today. Both programs provide benefits to Americans who are too disabled to work. And the strange thing is, if you look at the data, uh, the actual rate of disability in the economy seems to be falling over the last few decades. So actual disability seems to be falling, and yet the usage of SSDI and SSI has soared over the last few decades. So this is a paradox, and Tad and Jagadish will help explain this paradox in greater detail. Tad DeHaven is a budget expert, and he is a co-editor of downsizinggovernment.org. He's written extensively on farm subsidies and housing subsidies and all kinds of other uh, wasteful spending. He's a former budget analyst with Senator Tom Coburn and Senator Jeff Sessions, and he was an economist uh, in, in the Indiana State Budget Office under Governor Mitch Daniels. Uh, Tad has new studies on SSDI and SSI uh, posted on uh, downsizinggovernment.org. Jagadish Gokhale is a PhD economist and one of the nation's top experts on Social Security. He's also an expert on the unfunded obligations of state local pension plans. Jagadish is a member of the uh, federal government's Social Security Advisory Board. He's published many detailed analysis of Social Security, including the 2010 book, Social Security, A Fresh Look at Policy Alternatives. 
He's published many uh, academic papers on Social Security uh, and also SSDI. Jagadish was formerly at AEI and also the Federal Reserve Board. The thing to know about Jagadish uh, is that when you walk by his office at Cato, he's got two giant computer screens jam-packed full of data and running Social Security models constantly. So he is a consummate uh, data wonk, and he's going to tell us what all those numbers mean today. So how we're going to proceed is that uh, both Jagadish and, uh, and Tad have PowerPoints of about 10 minutes each. So uh, they're going to go through the PowerPoints, uh, and uh, then we hopefully we'll have time for uh, questions and answers. Thanks again for coming. I first became interested in disability programs because I do downsizinggovernment.org. I'm constantly looking at various programs, various agencies. One day I'm at Walmart and I overhear a conversation between two women. And the one woman says to the other, very matter of factly, I could either take the pay cut or I could just, just go on disability. And it really struck me that she, it just, she saw it as just being an obvious choice, take the pay cut or go on disability. You just don't go on disability, or at least so I thought. And uh, so that's kind of what resulted in me delving into these programs. Uh, today I'm going to talk about SSDI and SSI. More SSI, Supplemental Security Income, than SSDI, because uh, Jagadish is going to cover that. Um, and then I want to talk a little bit about inherent problems with the disability determination process, which is essentially the same for both uh, programs. So Social Security Disability Insurance, SSDI, uh, this is created, started in 1956. Uh, it was added on to traditional Social Security. Um, Basically, government planners for years had wanted a disability component to it. It took them that long to get it. Uh, the private sector warned them because the private sector had had trouble administering such programs uh, before the Depression, and the Depression pretty much wiped them out. And so uh, these executives that worked for these insurance companies met with these planners and said, look, if we can't do it, you sure can't do it because of the moral hazard and, and all the other issues. And, and that turns out to have been the case years later. Um, you have to work or had to have a history of work to collect SSDI. Uh, originally um, started off as a half a percent tax on workers' wages. Now it's up to 1.8 percent. Uh, if you are on SSDI, you're eligible for Medicare. And the cost of Medicare uh, for folks on SSDI is about $100 billion a year. And uh, as Jagadish will discuss, the trust fund for SSDI will be exhausted by 2016. Supplemental security income, this was created in 1974, and this was basically an initiative under uh, President Nixon. Uh, you had state programs for the blind and the disabled, and the federal government subsidized it. And so you had 50 different programs. It, but the Nixon administration thought it'd be more efficient just to have the federal government in charge of it. So they created SSI. Uh, it was originally designed for the elderly poor. And uh, as I'll discuss, it largely now benefits uh, the disabled poor. Um, 
$57 billion in 2013, uh, 8.3 million beneficiaries. Uh, this is paid with general funds. There's no work requirement, which is obviously different than SSDI. Um, it's a means-tested program. So if you meet asset and income limitations, if you're older, uh, you qualify. If you meet those same assets and income limitations um, below the age of 65 and you're found to be disabled, you, you qualify. Uh, again, Jagadish is going to talk about SSDI, so I'm just going to show a couple charts. This is SSDI spending uh, adjusted for inflation, uh, close to about its creation. As you can see, it's absolutely exploded, and as Chris pointed out, it's not like we're uh, a less healthy society. In, in fact, it's the opposite. We're a much more white-collar workforce, a lot more people work from home, and we have all kinds of technologies and stuff that helps the disabled. So uh, the explosion in costs is, is kind of hard to understand. And, uh, this shows disability recipients per uh, worker, and again, it's the same story. You have this massive increase, yet as a society, we're not becoming more disabled. Uh, and then one more point to make is that, you know, it's, it's a disability program, but lo and behold, uh, applications for disability move with um, the unemployment rate, or generally how the economy's doing. Uh, and this sort of goes back to that incident at Walmart where I heard the woman say, well, I could take the pay cut or I could go try and get on dis uh, disability. But Jagadish will, will cover SSDI. Um, here's spending for SSI, Supplemental Security Income. As you can see, uh, since the recession, it's really taken off, uh, up to $57 billion this year. And again, of the 8.3 million recipients, 7.1 million are disabled. There's actually fewer elderly people on SSI uh, today than there was at the program's inception. And of particular concern is the share of children on this program, which has really taken off. As I show there, it uh, went from 4% in 1980 to 16%. A lot of this is because of a liberalization of, of disability qualifications, and in particular, uh, the, the Sullivan versus Elby case in 1990, um, basically um, functional considerations had to be taken into consideration uh, uh, for whether a child's disabled. So their ability to get along with others, their ability to, to sit still, uh, things like that. And it, look, 1990, 8% of children receiving SSI benefit uh, qualified on the basis of a mental problem. Now it's up to 53% uh, as of 2011. Um, and it, Boston Globe had a series, a very depressing series, actually, a couple years ago. And, and poor, poor parents are actually trying to get their kids labeled, uh, trying to get them diagnosed with ADHD or some sort of other behavioral disorder. Um, and in fact, you know, medical professionals, they, the doctors and such, they feel pressure because they want to help these uh, kids out. And I hate to make light of it, but you have these situations where you have these doctors, uh, if you remember The Simpsons, Dr. Nick, you know, just basically, if you have a problem, I'll take care of it. And uh, I know that the town I grew up in, uh, we had a doctor that was known as Dr. Ritalin, because he was, that's where you take your kid to go get your ADHD medication and hopefully get SSI benefits. Um, and this is a problem because you have a lot of kids developing this identity of being disabled, whether they are or they aren't. A lot of these kids are able to work, but they don't because they don't want to jeopardize the check that's coming home. Uh, and that's not good for their future job prospects. But then a lot of these kids uh, end up staying on SSI. Uh, 
once they actually reach the age of 18. Um, and, and it's a similar problem with SSDI, but the Social Security Administration does an awful job of reviewing these children and disabled adults to make sure they're actually still disabled. And so, uh, in the, so even though you've had this growth in children collecting SSI benefits, the number of uh, reviews dropped 70 percent from 2000 to 2011, and now there's a backlog of 435 thousand children, and the SSA admits that probably half of these kids are capable of, of uh, working and, and are likely to improve. And that's the problem, is this, this system's broken, and it's essentially the same system. Uh, if, if you want to torture yourself, read my uh, papers and, and go through this, this process. There's, you have like three, four different appeals opportunities, um, and it, you start at your local SSA office, uh, but it's a state agency that actually makes the determination, and then you can appeal it. And in particular, it's the appeals to the ALJ, these administrative law judges. Uh, that's where a lot of your problems are at. And, and the GAO sums up the problem. Uh, you know, and it's the reason why both of them run a high risk, is because these programs emphasize medical conditions in assessing an individual's working capacity without adequate consideration of work opportunities afforded by advances in medicine, technology, and job demands. And I know Jagadish is going to talk about that. Uh, for SSI, mental disorders have grown to become the largest impairment uh, for awarding SSI disability, 60%. Um, after Congress relaxed eligibility standards in 1984, non-exertional restrictions, a, a mental condition, depression, back pain, 323% uh, jump in the subse subsequent 20 years. Uh, and the majority of disability applicants who are awarded benefits are determined to possess one of these non-exertional restrictions. Um, now you will hear, well, the majority of, of people who apply are denied. Well, that's true. but. It's the opposite for people who appeal, particularly to the ALJ level. Uh, and one of the big problems you have here is, is these judges, there's nobody advocating for the government, i.e. the taxpayer. Yet, the opposite is true for the person who's appealing. They very often have representation uh, for people with back orders, disorders. Representation at the appeals level can exceed 90%. And this leads to what we uh, now can call the disability industrial complex. And how many people have seen this guy's commercial? Binder and binder, yeah. And you've probably seen similar commercials depending on what state and area you live in. But uh, this guy's outfit's made $88 million off of uh, basically running people, running clients in. And uh, they don't make a ton of money. You get up to $6,000, but you have these specialty law firms that figured out and, and they hire non-lawyers and they basically rush people through the system. They figure out which judges are most likely to award benefits. And so that $6,000 adds up, adds up, adds up. Uh, in the Wall Street Journal found, you can see, um, fees paid out of taxpayers' pocket to these firms went from $425 million in 2001 to $1.4 billion in uh, 2011. Um, and again, they know which judges, and, and this is a problem, is the judges have a lot of independent authority. And uh, you know, one judge approved 97% of cases that involve disorders. Another judge uh, looking at the same sort of disorder only awarded 15% of the uh, cases. And, you know, as a result of all these applications and people applying for these benefits, 
now you have this in appealing, now you have this massive backlog of hearings, which has grown from 12,000 cases in 1999 to 817,000 cases in 2012. So what does the SSA do? They say, well, they tell these judges, you've got to start pushing these things through. We have this awful backlog. Well, the Association of Administrative Law Judges says, this is from the horse's mouth, we're pressured to grant more claims than, than we otherwise would. It's simply faster and easier to grant claims than to deny them. And so we have a broken system. Um, both programs need dire reform. Again, both programs basically utilize the same disability determination process. Uh, yeah, the, for SSDI, the trust fund is going uh, broke, but, uh, you know, you need fundamental reform. This isn't just about dollars and cents. I'd also argue it's about lives. And, you know, we have the Americans with Disability Acts. We, we were trying to incorporate and make it easier for people to work. Uh, and yet we've made it easy for people not to work. And getting back to SSI in the, in the uh, case of these children, uh, being put on medications and uh, being taught that, you know, you, you take a check instead of trying to work even a part-time job, uh, the repercussions of this is, is long-lasting. And so from a dollars and cents standpoint, yes, we need to cut and we need to reform. But uh, basically, you know, reforms are needed because that's what's good, not just for taxpayers, but the disabled uh, themselves. Okay, thanks for being here, folks. Uh, I'm Jagdish Gokhale, Chris. Thank you for that introduction. Uh, as a member of the Social Security Advisory Board, we, the board, looks into how the agency is operating, how the policies are being implemented, and so on. There's a lot of very detailed uh, studies and analyses that we do. I'm sure your folks are not really interested in all of that stuff. I'm going to therefore focus mostly on the macro, large, big P policy type issues that uh, Social Security Disability Insurance Program faces. That's the objective. So I'm going to start with some background about the program, uh, uh, how it has been changed over the years, and its effect on incentives today uh, for the disabled to participate in the workforce versus uh, get off the uh, workforce and apply for disability, get onto the insurance, and then stay there uh, uh, forever, essentially. Uh, so uh, let me begin with a uh, bunch of questions. Well, first, the definition of disability. It's a definition over a limited duration of disability. So it's a, a health or mental impairment that physical or mental impairment that prevents earning up to the substantial gainful activity level, which currently is around just over $1,000 per month, and is expected to continue for at least 12 months or result in death. That's the basic definition of disability today. Uh, 
So two questions is, one, you directly ask, well, this is a program supposed to protect workers against a disabling condition that prevents them from working and earning. So does the system offer an adequate safety net to the disabled? And my answer to that is basically yes. A second question then that we should ask is, are those with health impairments but still work capable enrolled into or are being allowed onto the program? And my answer to that question is also in the affirmative. So with the, with the second question especially, so it naturally follows, you have to ask, is it the policy or is it the agency's implementation of that policy? Basically policy compliance that's resulting in uh, an affirmative answer to the second question. And my take on that basically is looking at metrics exposed, basically looking at historical data about the implementation of the program, and I'll give you some indication or uh, talk about it a little more in a few minutes. The policy itself causes difficulties in implementation and therefore causes poor policy compliance. That's my take on it. So we need to improve the policies, that is, as Tad said, reform the program in ways that would uh, improve compliance, make it less difficult to deliver on those policy uh, policies by the agency's implementation of those policies. So, uh, as Tad again mentioned, it was introduced, the program was introduced in 1956, but at that time, the definition of disability was more permanent in nature. It was of long and indefinite duration. And benefits were allowed only for those above the age of 50, uh, uh, but uh, not yet retired, so between 50 and 65. But over the years, there have been key policy liberalizations, and I'll just point out three, in 1965, the policy was, uh, uh, the definition was changed from permanent to uh, the current definition, which is of limited duration, lasting only 12 months. So ba basically that means claimants who would uh, qualify for SSDI on the basis of this uh, temporary duration definition, but later recover from their disabling conditions could remain on the program potentially for a long period of time. Uh, in 1967, uh, the program was, uh, the adjudication of the program required taking into consideration not just health or mental, uh, physical or mental impairments that uh, prevented people from working, but also other criteria like job availability, age, education, experience, and so on were also additional criteria, vocational considerations that uh, entered into the uh, adjudication of these programs, which imposed constraints on adjudicators about whether they could declare someone, uh, uh, allow someone onto the program or reject the application. Uh, essentially, even though a judge might feel or subjectively determine that this person is work capable, these other criterion, these other criteria uh, would uh, impose a presumption of disability and the case would have to be allowed. And finally, in 1984, I point out here that the program began uh, allowances under subjective criteria, claims of uh, uh, pain and mental impairments that prevented work. Again, there are no objective medical criteria to really determine conclusively whether someone's pain is so disabling that they cannot work or they are so mentally impaired that they could not work. Mm -hmm. uh, so based on subjective, if, if it's based on subjective criteria, then the chances of there being errors, false negatives or false positives is increased. And that's, uh, 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 that was the uh, uh, change in 1984. 
So you could have both types of errors under the new system with more liberalized and subjective allowances for uh, disability claims. But these two types of errors, there's also an asymmetry involved in the, in the occurrence of these two types of errors. You could have, so let's say the null, null here is the applicant is disabled. Let's say that's the null hypothesis. We, one could make a false negative saying that, reject that application when it's actually true. But in that case, the applicant gets uh, opportunity to appeal the uh, decision four times and uh, before a rejection is final. But if you make the other error, that is the applicant is not disabled, but the uh, application is accepted and the person is allowed onto disability, that's it. That's permanent uh, entry into the program and you get benefits for a long period of time until your medical condition improves and you undergo a review of your condition after five or seven years and uh, you are taken off the system. So that's kind of a brief history of the program, how it's evolved and what how it operates today in an overall sense. The anti-work incentives that are built into the program as a result of these liberalizations uh, can be seen through this chart, which, is, uh, which uh, looks at trends in two different uh, 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 dimensions. One is how many people over time have chosen to uh, enroll onto SSDI. Those are the solid lines, blue for females, red for males. And as you can see, since the late 80s, you see a consistent trend upward in enrollments onto the SSDI program. And the dotted lines, again blue for females, is uh, the rate of labor force participation among this population. Now, this, the base population is those aged 25 through 59 who self-report having a work-limiting condition. So it's this it's not the entire population, it's this population of work-impaired people as they themselves report. And among this population, we see an increasing trend of uh, moving away from the, uh, or not working anymore and enrolling onto SSDI. That is a consistent and secular trend that indicates that the system now has built into it a strong anti-work incentive for this population. Now about policy compliance. So I said earlier that it's the policy, not the intentional impl implementation of the policy on the part of uh, the disability adjudication system. In fact, as a member of the board, I have had several conversations with the administrative law judges, both formal and informal conversations. I have visited their uh, offices, the disability determination system offices in various states, and I am convinced that they are fully committed to delivering on the policy. But it's the difficulty of implementing the current policy that results in uh, the data that I'm gonna show you right now, which is a distribution of ALJ allowance rates. So as you can see from this distribution, uh, there are several, it's a pretty wide distribution. So there are several instances of ALJs consistently allowing more than 90% of the cases that they adjudicate. And on the other end, you have some ALJs consistently rejecting 60% and allowing only 40% of the cases that they adjudicate. So how could this such a wide distribution come, come to be is the question. So there's two possibilities you could consider. One is that all of the ALJs 
are very similar in their approach to how they adjudicate these cases. But the distribution of cases among them is non-random, so that some of them always get the cases that should be allowed, which explains the 90% allowance rate, and others get mostly cases that, they sh that shouldn't be allowed, and so they have a very low allowance rate. Uh, the other extreme is that the distribution of cases are really fully random, but their approach to how they adjudicate these cases is different and substantially different. Which would you believe? So if you, if you calculate the, the um, persistence in their allowance rates over time, so across these three years for which I'm showing the data, the uh, persistence as measured by their rank correlation coefficient, that is if a judge is uh, allowing 90% of the cases in one year, was the chance that he'll allow, again, 90% of the cases in the following year and then in each subsequent year, turns out to be 0.9, which is very high, which makes it very difficult to believe that the uh, uh, distribution is random and uh, uh, difficult to believe that the distribution of cases across them is non-random and they're all similar in their approach. It's more likely that the opposite is true, that they're really... Uh, it's very difficult for these judges to, uh, across the entire system, remain consistent in how they approach different cases. And finally, uh, well, actually not finally, I have a couple more slides. Uh, this is looking at the uh, prevalence of uh, 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 SSDI in the, in the insured population. So, it's the prevalence rate which tells us about the number of beneficiaries per thousand insured in the population. And as you can see, since the mid-80s, that rate has gone up consistently. That's the solid line. Uh, it's doubled from around, I said, let's say, uh, in uh, about 1990, uh, it was less than 30%, and now it's about close to 60%. So it's doubled in the span of the last two, uh, two and a half decades. Uh, and it, the doubling is explained by various factors, the aging of the population, the prev more, greater prevalence of uh, mental and musculoskeletal-based conditions that are being allowed on subjective grounds and so on. But I want to draw your attention to the difference between the expectation of how the prevalence rate will uh, uh, evolve in the future, which is the dotted lines uh, that the trustees and the actuaries of the system project each year, and the actual realization, which is the solid line. So let me magnify that, especially for the last few years. And what you can observe is the realization is always above the expected, the previously expected uh, rate of increase in the prevalence rate. Well, you could approach, you could look at this and draw two conclusions. One possible conclusion is the trustees don't know what they're doing. They cannot, for the life of them, uh, uh, make uh, accurate and consi consistent projections. In fact, they're making mistakes on the same side every time, is what you would say. That's really not. But I wouldn't actually draw that conclusion. If I were given the charge of doing this exercise of projecting how the prevalence rate will evolve in the future, I would do pretty, pretty much what they do, which is take the population of insured, age them by a year, uh, apply the age-specific rates of disability, uh, 
take off those who at the high age uh, end, those who would be shifted onto the retirement system and add a new cohort and look at my projection. That's basically the methodology they follow. Uh, maybe there's some other adjustments for updates of data and so on. And then you'd get a projection. And next year you come and see, oh, the realization is higher than what you projected every time. So if, you, if I'm not going to say that the trustees don't know what they're doing, I only have to conclude that there's something going on with the program itself that's providing incentives for people to get onto the disability system. And therefore, the realization is always above what we expect to happen in the future. This is not just happening in recent times. It's also been happening in the past, in the 90s and so on. The exception is 96. Uh, that's the only exception. Every time the realization has been uh, below, uh, uh, has been above the expected rate of uh, increase in the preference rate. Finally, this is just a pro forma chart, so to say, to tell you how the finances of the program are going to evolve. Uh, 2015 is the last year projected with a positive trust fund. Uh, March 2016 is when the trust fund is, will be depleted. And so that's, uh, that should have uh, people in Congress, policymakers, talking about how to reform this program. It's an opportunity. But uh, as Dad mentioned, did you mention? I don't remember. But as Dad mentioned, uh, uh, I think the most likely scenario seems to be at least, given the low intensity of the discussion on reform on SSDI, that uh, a simple action of transferring trust fund monies from the retirement to the disability system seems to be the most likely. And since that's an available option, that kind of explains the lack of interest in discussing disability policies. But as I mentioned in this presentation, we have fundamental anti-work incentives built into the program. And that incentive is evident in the data in terms of pulling people away from the workforce, uh, separating them from the workforce, and getting them to enroll in SSDI. So the question is, do we need this kind of a safety net above everything else? We need this kind of a safety net. question is, should it be at the expense of everything else, especially uh, given the built-in anti-work incentives in, in the system? Uh, so those who support the status quo on the program in terms of big P policy would suggest, well, the first thing in, when you consider reform to the system is do no harm. But I think the most important message to to convey is that eligibility, easy elig relatively easy eligibility to DI itself might constitute harm because it leads to all kinds of bad effects. So reform options, we might think of reform similar to what uh, was implemented during the mid-90s for uh, welfare reforms, things like time-limited benefits or additional work supports for those who, who, who experience an onset of a disabling condition and are at risk of eventually applying for the program and getting onto it. Uh, various different federal agencies have dual and opposing mandates. You can think of the Federal Reserve or Homeland Security. The SSDI should also have a dual and opposing mandate, maybe, which says, well, we need to protect the disabled and provide them support, but we also need to make sure that the system does not uh, uh, build in undue anti-work incentives. <laughs> 